0: I, I, he has nowhere to go. He's got no money, and and bottom line, the guild needs him for raid DPS.
1: Worst loot ever. <laughs> another episode of Free Dashy Pod. This
0: is Warren. I'm here with the wonderful Nicholas. What? You know, you always say such nice things about me and I always feel really self-conscious cuz I'm like, no, I'm not that great. I'm okay.
1: No, I'm you're you're awesome. Anybody <laughs> with that background has to be amazing.
0: Oh yeah, so so for those of you who either like are just now turning into the tuning into the YouTube or didn't for some reason didn't listen to last week's episode, I have a new background. Um I also am wearing a hat. This is not a fashion statement. Um, I am
1: also wearing a hat, but so we can be hat twins.
0: It's not, yeah. (laughs) I'm now in the coldest part of the basement. So um, it's just, and it's also like here in Iowa, like today it's a high of one and that's Fahrenheit, not centigrade. So if you're centigrade, that's like minus 12 or minus 13.
1: So it's pretty cold. Pretty cold. Yeah. It's 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 Canadian up there.
0: Pretty cold.
1: But we wanted to thank you guys for listening through last week's episode about gamification. If you've just tuned in or you skipped ahead to this episode, well, we really would encourage you to go back to listen to our conversation because at the end there, we really gave like a very good point about the way that games can also incentivize or say cover up right mechanics or things that you don't want to do.
0: Yeah. Do you so want Do you want to sort of go like rehash that, or do you want me to read? No, you you're
1: that? gonna have to go listen to that episode. Yeah. Podcast, go listeners. go
0: back. We're not gonna talk. We're just. Gonna, we're not gonna talk about that. No, we'll
1: rehash it for sure. Um, but we'll we'll get to that for yeah. for this week's start. What we really want to talk about is rewards-driven design.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: and that is something in game design or in game development that basically is saying, hey, for every risk that you take or for everything that you do in the game, we want to give you reward. And so I'm gonna go back and I'm gonna read. Something that a very great game designer wrote. Okay, I actually, can't even actually yeah, say so that. Yeah, so this is someone that Lauren, <laughs> this is
0: someone Lauren and I both know. Um, that we've known for a really long time, probably since 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 I taught at Iowa um they're they're really fantastic um really, really... Oh, now
1: i'm getting uh, now i can't i can't hold <laughs> well I'm, I'm now doing it to you
0: by the way we're actually yeah. talking about lauren this is something we're talking more about more. i
1: i i tried to to, <laughs> to maintain it because we were like we're gonna do this gimmick and i was like i can't i can't you do, do it, the gimmick no. and then he just did it really well
0: no but you did have a really succ- succinct way of putting it so if you could like remind our listeners of what that was real quick
1: this is why rewards driven design is the hardest and most unachievable metric to accurately give players something to chase Better gear, loot, and armor isn't going to cut it for long. Players will need new stimuli for their boredom and will need greater and greater risk and rewards to maintain it. If anything, relying too much on loot is the very thing that both hooks millions of people and then sinks the same millions off of the game.
0: Yeah. So the, there's this basic problem of like the fix. And so when you're talking about, you know, sort of, when you have a clear like one-to-one correspondence between sort of the, the the behavior that the game elicits from you and the reward and or effect in the game that sort of functions as some like pleasurable thing that you get as a response for it. um, The problem is, is that the more clearly correlated those two things are like the less satisfactory it becomes over time. It's, it's, you know, this is how addiction functions, you know, it's, it's, you can, in a sense, build a tolerance to rewards in a game the same way that you can build a tolerance to, say, you know, opiates, and you'll need and you'll need more of it in order to sort of like feel the same thing again.
1: Yeah, and then this is this is kind of what's devastating to me and why I talk about how rewards-driven design isn't sustainable, because reward-driven design implies that the driving factor or the desire to play is not actually enough to make you do that action. And so when we talk about the loot grind, this is actually very different than what other Final Fantasy players will be very aware of, which is the combat grind. In order to get to level 15, you grind like 10 or 15 hours, you get that level. And the leveling grind is very different. And so now you can kind of see, okay, the leveling grind how do I appreciate that, value that, or why is that more fun than when I start talking about things like the loot grind or the loot chest? And yeah. it's because it can, even with the same, say, core mechanic structure, suddenly take something that was very fun to you and with the uh, placement or um, paper mache over it, can then take it and be very displeasurable for you, make it a grind, make it something that you don't want to do. Yeah.
0: And so when in our previous episode, we, we were trying to tease out two things that are related, but are actually different, which is that so whenever we, when we were talking about gamification, we were specifically talking about the way in which like gamified things try to compel you to do things that you don't actually want to do. And so in the previous episode, I used the example of multiplying fractions and then a game that my daughter has played in the past. Um, Lauren, you used the example of like, you know, the uh, Starbucks re- reward system. But the, what we determined is actually that those are two different things. Because in the one case, so the, the so the Star Wars, re- Star Wars, Star Wars, <laughs> Starbucks rewards. It's really system. hard for me too. Yeah, Starbucks reward system is much closer to what um, Lauren is talking about. And what I used as an example, which I thought was relevant, but we actually figured out was somewhat different, was a w- the way in which like you take the pleasurable act, you take a pleasurable activity that someone does want to perform. In other words, the game itself actually is pleasurable to do. But then there is this unpleasurable thing that the game is then mapped onto so as to sort of push you past your desire not to do it. What Lauren is talking about is like within the context of a game, things that are themselves undesirable to do, but there is this reward structure built into it that gives you some justification for doing it, but that that's not really good enough. In many ways, the thing that I was talking about in my daughter's game is almost like a more effective way of doing it because the gameplay itself is pleasurable rather than yes. sort of like providing a thing at some like end point.
1: Well, I, exactly. And I think what's hard with rewards driven design. And when we talk about the loot grind is it already assumes that whatever you are going to do, this is why, or this is why re- relying on rewards driven design is bad is that rewards driven design is reward driven. This means that any desire you have to play is driven by the reward of it, not by the actual act of doing it. And so Nicholas's daughter's game, she has to perform math. This is a good example of rewards driven design before educational purposes, because while she may not wanna do math, she has a reward but the reward itself is the experience and so even though there's this one unpleasurable thing that she must do uh, which is math or unfun we could say as well um, and for those of you who do enjoy math this entire game would be great for you probably that she performs a mechanic math that she does not enjoy but in order to see the cool animation and to defeat the boss There could also be social right pressure. Maybe she's in a group of four friends and they all have to complete.
0: Yeah, there is because it's an MMO as well.
1: Right. It's an MMO. So she has to complete the equation. So now the social joy comes from completing math, that she may begin to associate math with, say, social joy and also right boss defeating. But at the end of the day, math is a mechanic. Math is not the reward. Right. And also math is not the incentive or points structure that just makes you more and more effective at it.
0: Yeah.
1: Rewards driven design. And also I would say rewards driven progression design, such as say skills or gear that make you more effective or more efficient at doing the exact same thing is, could both be good and bad. That is another way of kind of taking an incentive structure to it. But rewards-driven design done poorly and relied upon basically states that whatever you have, say your core combat or a puzzle mechanic, isn't actually fun. And the only way to get through this is to then by getting a reward. The only way players will play missions is if there's great rewards at the end of it, right? And that already then assumes that playing the mission, like in this example of defeating the boss, that that isn't actually fun. Um, yeah. And it could be as simple as getting through two levels or swinging your sword 50 times, right? Yeah. And that's rewards, I call it rewards-driven uh, design, say versus mechanics-driven design, which is very much more, right? Oh, the mechanic itself is fun to play. Let's, yeah. It will become more fun if we make it faster. Let's give players yeah. a skill after they've done it 50 times or yeah. reach level five to make it a little bit faster. Now players are going, oh, I really want to do this mechanic. That's yeah. why games like Ghost of Tsushima are so good at their skills, because it takes things that players love to do, like a standoff, and makes them able to do it so much that then it just becomes kind of a cheese to do all the other combat. Yeah. But is that bad? No, because players had fun with that mechanic.
0: Also, you're bringing up an important distinction because in many ways, you're still talking about a reward structure. However, you're pointing out something that maybe people don't necessarily, it's possible that designers actually do recognize when they're doing it, or maybe it's just sort of like a happy accident. But in that instance, in the case of Ghost of Tsushima, you're talking about a form of like reward or like a skill progression in the game that then also fundamentally affects how you play the game. In other words, it's not just, so like, you know, if you think of your like, you know, your classic MMO problem, it's one in which, you know, you were like, you get an item and it just has bigger numbers on it. Like it has, and so you're just improving stats and you have to improve the stats as we said in the previous episode, because it's the means by which you then are become capable of doing new content. However, if you look at rewards in game as a way to sort of fundamentally restructure how you play it or sort of cause play to evolve over time, then you're not just doing it for the, the loot, you're also doing it for the expanded gameplay opportunities. And so I was going through my notes because I had actually written a couple of examples of this. So uh, which one do I want to use? Actually, I'll, use, I'll talk about a game that I'm familiar with that we haven't talked about before, which is Dota. Other, other MOBA games are available. <laughs> I'm not, Like, I'm, lol. Yeah, I'm not. <laughs> Dota 2. I, I'm, not, I'm not a purist. Like, there are, there are examples of this. Like, Dota just happens to be the one that I'm familiar with. I, I'm not one of those, like, oh, Dota. Yeah, Dota no, Dota.
1: this is fine. For anybody who doesn't even know what a Dota purist is, let's just move on and let's talk about Dota. Yeah, screw
0: those guys. So, um, in your average MOBA game generally, the items don't just improve your stats. There are items that improve your stats, but there are also usually items that do something really fundamentally different. And so, for example, in the case of Dota, one of the sort of standard modes of team play that has evolved over time is the so-called four protect one. What this means is that sort of four players on your team essentially act as like a screen for one player who is just like farming mobs in game as much as possible in order to get gold and experience so that way they can get the really high tier items that then enable the so called carry player to do really like fantastic and really sort of powerful things that the base character cannot. And so as you acquire these items, like, for example, I mean, some of them are just stat things. So, like, a good example of this is the Divine Rapier in Dota, which literally is just a, a weapon that has, like, an insanely high damage. But because the damage is so insanely high, it means that you can basically one-shot people. But it also has a, an incredible downside to it, where if the character who has the rapier gets killed, then the other team can pick it up. And so, that fundament- so even though it's just a stat stick, because of the way they designed that stat stick, it fundamentally transform how- transforms how the game is played. And you see this in all sorts of games. You see it in, you know, there are, there are items in like D&D that are basically just stat items, but then you also have items like, say, the immovable rod or the, um, the fold- foldable boat, which don't seem all that interesting at first, but then when you think about all the different things that you can do with it, Like it fundamentally transforms your gameplay. And so that is in many ways sort of a better way to think about the reward structure than just like, oh, hey, let's increase our stats, which I think is what Lauren's talking about.
1: Yeah, and we look at game design, we look at the breadth of design. So how many things are you able to do? And we also talk right then about the depth of design. And it is possible to have both breadth and depth, but what Nicholas rightly points out is that one thing can if it has incredible depth can have an amazing wealth of breadth once you get to it. Mm-hmm. Right. But the more say items you had, right. Say, instead of saying we have one stat stick, say you had five slightly altered stat sticks, some drop, some go with you, right. Because we need to fulfill say 90 items in the game. Well, yeah. now suddenly you're going to get to that rewards design monotony. The Right, boredom, the, oh, I traded stat stick one because it was at five. Now here's the legendary version of the stat stick, which is the cool one. But everyone gets a stat stick between like level five and 40. So everybody already knows how to play against it. Everybody's already seen the gimmick. Nobody has something to aspire to. What I really wanted to go into to kind of piggyback off of what Nicholas is saying is that he talks about the fundamental reason for changing gameplay as a driver right? For wanting that stat stick. Let's go back to last week's episode of Habitica and kind of talk about why that doesn't really work for me because Habitica assumes that it's, it's amoral. It's static. Your habit, obviously any habit, learning a language, getting fit, maybe running a mile in six minutes, right? That's a habit. So obviously when you have an external system, this is the habit you want to do. Just use an external system. It'll make it better. Yeah. But it doesn't answer the question. Why? Why do you want that habit? Yeah. What is driving you to have that habit? But in a game term now, it's going to be why and how does that habit make your life better? So how does that habit or mechanic make your gameplay more pleasurable? How does it improve your experience? That's where we get to the good types of say rewards or the good types of drivers because rewards design is about not so much about driving someone's desire. And it's not really about finding a desire and then trying to drive players towards it. It's about kind of looking at what the player has accessible to them or what the game wants the player to have something accessible.
0: Yeah.
1: And then finding out how um, the system is just, how do we make the player recognize that they could have a, this desire for this, right? Yeah. It's how does that actually transform and why would the player want to go after it? When we talked about World of Warcraft last week, we looked at how I think, you know, it was a little bit of a happy accident because the loot at the high tier in raids was just to reward players for spending so much time on that content. But over time, the classes of wow were divided between those who could achieve that or were part of groups that got it and then those that didn't. The desire was internal for that because they saw something that looked cool. Yeah. Over time, the maybe happy accident or unhappy accident was designers re- recognizing that, that he created this economy and that they could continue to drive players by a desire of an item. Yeah. Over time, what we have seen is that now all games think that they should have a loot grind, that they should have these yeah. tiers of items and they should have all of this loot that you should get over and over and over again. Yeah. Right. While other games like say Hades or Splunky have recognized that honestly you just need the drive to do something fun because you don't actually you are not motivated by loot. Because yeah. in roguelikes, you, you your loot all goes away on reset, Yeah. right? And so yeah. now Hades then mixes it with a progression-based system, say, alternatively for, for narrative, but it's very different.
0: Hades is a really good example of how to do this correctly. Because, I, so we talked a little bit, so we have an episode on Hades. We, we talk a lot more, more about this in depth. So if this interests you, go back and listen to it. It's actually a really good episode. I think it's episode nine or eight or nine hello everybody it's um nicholas from the future actually it's episode six hell is other games okay back to the episode um the the reason why hades does this really well is because it sort of solves the diablo problem one of the problems with diablo and why i find it really obnoxious to play is because precisely because it has exactly this sort of reward driven structure that you're talking about but also the game is really monotonous to play. So like, but you have to get those things in order to keep playing the game in this monotonous way. And I suppose for some people that's pleasurable, but for me, it's it's really not. Like, you can play through like the entire story of Diablo and then like the continuing gameplay that it offers you is to play through the story again, but it's harder. Like, okay. I mean, like I said, that appeals to some people, but it doesn't appeal to me.
1: Right, and it never appealed to me either. Yeah.
0: And I think the reason why Hades is much better about this is because it has the same repetitiveness to it. It has the same sort of, and, and this isn't, this isn't, in many ways, it's not a Diablo problem. It's a roguelike problem. All roguelikes are like this. They will over time start to feel repetitive. But the reason why Hades does this well is because instead of having like Diablo, all of its story contained, like you you can complete the entire story, you know, on the easiest setting and then you have no real incentive to keep playing it. What Hades does is it sort of one, gives a narrative structure for the repetitiveness. In other words, the game itself explains to you why Zagreus, I can't say that, Zagreus, (laughs) keeps having to do this over and over again. But each time you go back and each time you start over, the starting point changes things suddenly like subtly change in the game over time whether that's narrative whether that's new things becoming available to you ways that you can upgrade your character like there is a subtle progression there and it feels like it's moving forward in the gameplay
1: right in the gameplay yeah and to any game developers listening that is why hades won the narrative game of the year award it was not because Their story was incredible because it was, and it was not because they did anything super incredibly innovative with that story or the writing. And this is not to say that the writing isn't incredible because it is. They won it because the narrative and the gameplay were each other's best friend. Yes. Gameplay was the narrative. Yeah. The narrative existed because of the gameplay. Yeah. That is what won them the narrative award. And when we look at those subtle movements forward through time and space of play experience, that is what the future of games really is about. That is erasing the grind because the grind is part of the story. It's part of the process. It's part of the experience.
0: Well, it's not a a grind at all. In many ways, it's much more like our experience because the thing is think about your own life think about your day-to-day life you have daily habits you have a daily routine but in your own life you don't experience i mean you may experience that as a monotony because capitalism sucks and it's grinding you down but for a lot of people they don't necessarily experience their their day-to-day life in those terms precisely because they have a feeling of sort of like tiny progressions on a day-to-day basis that could be because they're aging it could be because like you know They're developing relationships with, you know, people they're in love with or people that they work with or just like casual friends, like all of those things are evolving alongside of it alongside the routine as it progresses. And that's the thing that Hades captures is that slow, steady evolution and sort of like almost like a a flowering, if you will.
1: Yeah. And what's really interesting about that is we talked about habit building and how excited I am about productivity, but it's on taking these new habits, say like learning Spanish or learning French. And when you have people that are in your life that speak Spanish or speak French fluently, or it's their first language, you're taking on that habit of learning and making that progress for that language step-by-step, because once you gain that skill, Or ability. Now your gameplay experience, your life experience is going to change for it. Well, now suddenly you can speak fluent French and you could go to France or just talk to your friend right now in fluent French, but she would now suddenly go, Oh wait, when I go to France, I could bring Lauren with me because she speaks fluent French and she could actually like meet my family or she could go to different restaurants. Or if I left her right in Paris for a little bit, like she wouldn't get lost and be crazy because she can speak and read right? The street signs and get around. Yeah, And I think that that's a great example of kind of why we're also so hung up on role-playing games Yeah, because unfortunately role-playing and role-playing games themselves have allowed us to look at our own lives and have this kind of one-to-one example of how we would live that life in a fantasy or science fiction or ancient Greek under like underworld setting yeah right there's that role play aspect to it yeah that we don't talk about when we talk about with Hades but it's very much yeah, there it is. and it's because it has that evolution of time and unfortunately it's almost like these loot shooters have created the downfall of the RPG yeah. and modern MMOs have created the downfall of the RPG because they've kind of just focused on that G side which is the numbers and the stats and the, yeah. obviously your goal is to gain experience, which is a number, which will just increase a wooden sword to the bronze sword, to yeah. the iron sword, to the silver sword,
0: right? <laughs> yeah, you're, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're right. Think, oh, sorry, go ahead if you were.
1: I, no, I was, I was, basically I was just gonna be like, and I think that that's terrible.
0: That was what I was gonna say. <laughs> no, no, so. I, I, I agree with you. But so we're still talking about something that is fundamentally amoral because so far we've used examples where it is like pleasurable or at least not unpleasurable. It's not you know disconcerting, but there is an aspect. So, okay. So what we're talking to, to recenter the conversation, what we're talking about right now is when sort of a reward structure works well is when it sort of maps. And the, one of the reasons why we're so obsessed with role-playing games is that it works well when it sort of maps onto our own life experiences because then our own life experiences sort of provide the guide and the sort of natural incentive for like progressing through something that may or may not be pleasurable the flips and so we know in a game like Hades it's great because that is a good game and it's sort of it's not trying to antagonize you too harshly it does antagonize you but not too harshly The problem is the flip side of this going back to sort of like the larger question of gamification is when you see that mapping used as a kind of a form of economic exploitation. In fact, no, actually, I'm not going to use the economic example. So I was going to talk about my brother-in-law, but you guys don't care about my brother-in-law. Um, so I actually... I'm trying
1: to see, are we even... Is that really what we're saying here? I think it is, I know actually. we're saying a lot, but...
0: No, I, I, I think it is, because it, it, I, I believe it's why you brought up why we're obsessed with role-playing. Because the thing is, and it's also something that we brought up before, is Like even when you're playing a game that isn't, strictly speaking, a role-playing game there is a form of identify like in the really really good games and the games that we really really take pleasure in there is a way in which we as players to some degree identify with the avatar in the game that we're playing it doesn't necessarily need to be a human avatar but we're seeing the experience of the thing that represents us in the game as somehow analogous to our own experiences and sort of the best example of that is probably a role playing game, but it doesn't have to be a role playing game. So right. but, yeah.
1: Yeah, and I also want to mention though that I mean, for any of our listeners out there that are hearing this and going, that's not how I play games. As a game designer, I, under- I understand that. But I also challenge that because yeah. even if saying you're playing Call of Duty and you're like, oh, but I, I don't relate to that soldier. But you've played like six hundred hours of Call of Duty, and now you're super invested in their new game mode Warzone, and you're just like always on it. I would really question if you do or do not identify right with what you play, even if yeah. it is to say release anxiety or release stress, right? Because I know a lot of players who play first-person shooters or who play things like Apex Legends, for example. And Apex is is a, an amazing game. Um, But and it has like a lot of different maps and and game modes and and you can we can go into right like the like the systems of it. Yeah. But at the end of the day, people playing Apex, right, are identifying with one of the say characters in it, or they are identifying with the release of performing those types of I
0: think I would clarify. You may identify with a character. Um, mm-hmm. And on our Twitter, I posted an, an article, a really well artic- a really well written article from Polygon, in which um, a young woman talks about the way in which she identified with mm-hmm. Zelda in Breath of the, in Breath of the Wild. Um, however, I think where people will probably try to deny that they that they identify with the game is where they're actually identifying with the experience of the game. In other words they don't necessarily give a crap about the character the char- the character could be like an asexual robot model and with no real human feelings or characteristics.
1: I would play that game.
0: <laughs> but what they're <laughs> identifying with is what happens to the representation of them in the yes. game. So when you're th- when you're thinking about say like let's use the example of, I don't know, PUBG or Apex, Even okay, Apex Legends is something you brought up. So in Apex Legends, you're, you're dropped into a war zone and you and the people on your team, unless you're doing solo play, like work together to overcome the obstacle that is the other team. The thing is, it doesn't matter like what your character represents. When you think about the experience that you undergo in the game, like you're dropped into a situation, you have to first try to figure out what is going on in that situation, what tools you have available to you to deal with that situation and then actually execute a plan and overcome the obstacles that are put before you. That is something that maps onto the things that happen in your real life. So think about, think about like starting a shift. Like let's say you work a crappy, I don't know, like retail job. You know, when you start your shift, the store has probably already been open for some time and things have already been happening. You are dropped into that situation You need to figure out from, you know, the person on the previous shift, what is going on, what sorts of things you need to take care of, like what sort of, you know, things are available to you to deal with them. Like, are there customers who are currently like complaining about things? It's a similar situation. It's so when I say you're identifying with the game, I mean, you're identifying with that you're identifying with the process that the avatar goes through in the game.
1: Yep. And that's an amazing way to put it as well, Nicholas, because you are identifying with the experience and yep. the experience itself is just as valuable or as valid as someone saying that they ex- don't like the gameplay, but they identify with the character mm-hmm. and identifying with that experience even more so because say that that's all you did in your life was be dropped into situations that you don't really Understand exactly what's going on, but you have to work with a team to kind of figure out the best solution coordinate with everyone to get to that solution. And then once you've solved it, literally just go into another match and do the whole thing over again. Yeah, your homework for this week is to say do you or do you not like these types of gameplay experiences that are consistently right dropping you into an unknown situation where you now have to figure it out. Now in a battle royale, you're figuring it out all by yourself. So there are no people, maybe you're in squads, you're in duos or you're in, right? You're in a team play. So you are freaking out with your team. I'm curious, do you, or do you not like those experiences? I want to say that if you don't like those types of experiences, it's probably because you actually live them maybe hyperbolically every single day of your life.
0: Possibly. yeah.
1: Right. Possibly. On the flip side, though, because games are the way they are and humans are the way they are, maybe you do live that at your everyday life but have no control over it. Yeah. But in the game, you love it because you do have control over what happens, Yeah. right? Yeah, and so exactly. now you're living that fantasy of having the control of being able to be, have a coordinated team and overcome any obstacle because in the real life, you can't. Yeah. Maybe in the real world you're actually really kicking ass and overcoming every obstacle with your very highly skilled coordinated team. And so the last thing you want to do is go into the game and just repeat what you're doing. Yeah. And so I'd be curious, identify what what experiences do you enjoy? Which do you not enjoy? And how does that map onto your real life?
0: So before we we leave everyone this week, I want to I believe in modeling these things, not just being like, here's your homework, go do it. So to, to give an example. Um, from my own life. In fact, as Lauren was mentioning that, so I'm going to do the homework right now, just off the top of my head.
1: I'll do the homework after <laughs> him so we can both <laughs> yeah. model this for you.
0: So um, at the beginning of the pandemic, I started playing a lot more of um, Total War Warhammer 2, which for those of you who are not familiar with the game, is sort of a combination of a real-time strategy game and like a turn-based like grand strategy game. And what's interesting about it is that, I and I think why it appealed to me at that time, is because it was at a moment in my life when I thought I had lost my job again. By the way, I still have my job. It's, it's a weird situation when you're an adjunct. You never know if you have a job the next year. I, I thought that my, my job teaching at Syracuse was over. We were um, at the beginning of what would turn out to be a now nearly year-long lockdown from a global pandemic because the United States sucks. And at, in that moment, I wanted to do precisely what Lauren was talking about. I wanted to play something in which I felt like I was in control, literally, of my entire faction, and ultimately through Conquest, the entire world, the, the, sort of the gameplay world in which the representation of me, the faction that I was playing, again, the focus on the process, not necessarily... Because, like, I don't know. I don't think of myself as being particularly cruel, but I like to play Dark Elves and Dark Elves are not a good faction in the game. <laughs> um, but th- but that, that sensation that I have by sort of identifying with the experience of feeling like I was in control when at the same time in my life, I felt like I wasn't, that was a deeply pleasurable or at least I guess you could say like a therapeutic experience. So that's a good that's an example I don't know if it's a good example but it's an example Lauren what's your example that's a
1: good example no any example that kind of can map onto your like real life I think is a good example um I have a couple I do have one that I also started during the pandemic but much much later and it's because it's uh it's Animal Crossing um when Animal Crossing first came out and everyone started playing it and they had a lot of fun I had like the initial like FOMO of like I should be playing this game because it's fun. But from my previous experiences with Animal Crossing, I just really don't like it. It's the monotony of everyday tasks and the chores that you have to complete. And in my own life, I have a very just rigid schedule, a lot of people would say, but it's because I get joy from having that routine every day. I have the discipline, I maintain it. And when I get out for my morning walk uh, slash like jog or whatever I do, because it's cold and I honestly just run to like get my heart rate up and then I go back to walking. To
0: be warm again.
1: Yeah. I'm like, Oh gosh, I need to be cold. Like, "Ah," or I need to be warm. Ah," Right. And then when it gets hot, I like don't run because it's like, I'm already warm. So I just walk. And I, I get a lot of joy from that. So Animal Crossing, a game that is about completing your chores and building out your houses and stuff. It does not appeal to me because I already had a house. Well, suddenly they came out with a Halloween patch. And as you know, in from, from knowing me, I am very into Halloween. Yeah. And when I do Halloween, I do decorations. I do costumes. I like, I guess I plant pumpkins now, but I yeah. plant pumpkins in Animal Crossing. Like I go out, I carve a jack-o'-lantern. I'm with my friends. Suddenly Animal Crossing got me. It made sense because in a time of pandemic, I couldn't go out and try on costumes or buy all the costumes with my friends. Yeah. I couldn't go to their houses and like raid their costume drawers, and closets, um, my friends and I are really into costuming. So yes, we all do have costuming closets, slash like drawers and storage yeah. containers. I couldn't decorate my house because I had just moved into a new apartment. Yeah. It also didn't really matter if I had decorated because no one was gonna come over. I couldn't like carve a pumpkin yeah. with everyone. I ended up uh, actually carving a pumpkin um, with a friend. And so that was really exciting, but it was just something that I really wanted to do and explore. And so I made Halloween Town in Animal Crossing and I got it literally just to play the Halloween patch. And suddenly I was like, I get this game now because I was not able to express myself in my yeah. real world with my real friends. And I had a Halloween party on my island cause I was like super proud of it um, and collected candy and like gave it to all my villagers because I couldn't do Halloween which is a longstanding tradition that I didn't really realize that I had yeah. until it was gone because of the pandemic. Yeah. And so maybe framing it in the pandemic is also a kind of a good thing. If something didn't immediately pop out to you, um, that, yeah, frame it in the pandemic. What p- game did you pick up during the pandemic or what game got you through the pandemic? And then how did that map onto your own life? Because I think that this has been a really big time of internal kind of right reflection and monologue for people.
0: Yeah. Well, mostly because they're they're just cooped up and yeah. yeah. No, that was fantastic. Guess... Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead.
1: I get my second example was Greedfall. And I just wanted to, I have no idea why I, I picked that. Like I know why I picked that game up. And it's because I wanted like Dragon Age, but different and with pirates. Yeah. Um, and there were actually very less pirates, but I don't think that really <laughs> maps into my I, I'm not sure if that maps into my my real life or not. I still can't figure it out. But I just wanted to pitch Greedfall as well. It is an amazing game. If you like role-playing games, go play Greedfall. It's great. It's actually relatively small. Um and it is in a fantastic job of choice and consequences. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, Lauren, that was fantastic. Do you wanna, do you wanna take, us, take us away this week?
1: Yes, I will take us away, guys. Do your homework. Uh, please let us know in the comments. Like, subscribe, shout at us at Twitter. We really are desperately looking for hearing your, your thoughts. And as much as I love my friends who text me their opinions, please put your opinions on a public vicinity so that other people can judge your opinions as much as we do.